We did get uh, a phone call this week. I got a phone call this week from uh, India, and uh, Pastor Reddy says somebody here wants to talk to you, and it was Pastor Philip, and so I got to speak with him and uh, the as a representative of the church, and they wanted to express their uh, deep gratitude for the uh, funds, and they start reconstruction of their roof tomorrow, um, which is today there. Uh, Let's see here. Not quite. Uh, It's 10 o'clock tonight, so it's tomorrow morning, yeah, for them. Yeah, it's it's evening there right now. So um, in the morning, which will be tonight, They'll be starting construction, so we pray. We'll be praying for them tonight, especially during our uh, prayer time after the services tonight. Um, but uh, they wanted to express their thankfulness and let you know of their prayers for you, and uh, and just their uh, ex- how excited they were. So they had just purchased all the materials when they called, and uh, to replace the roof that was damaged by that storm. And so we're excited about them being able to uh, get that going, and uh, they'll have. Just this Sunday is their last Sunday of, hope, Lord willing, of not having a roof over their head in their church. All right, if you'll turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians. I know most of you already turned to the book of Acts because you figured that's where we we're going to be at. But Philippians chapter 1, we'll read a passage there, the corollary passage to our study in Acts this morning. Philippians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 19, we'll read through the end of the chapter, and as is my custom, I'll be reading out the New King James Version, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 through 30, God's word declares, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that that in nothing I shall be ashamed. With all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. This morning I am going to focus on a very small portion of scripture compared to what we've been doing. Because we have been dealing in a narrative, uh, you probably have gotten unused to me doing this because we're handling entire events at a time and it is taking up sometimes half a chapter or a whole chapter at a time. And we are certainly in the midst of a narrative, there's no doubt about it. We are in the midst of of a very quick moving narrative as Paul moves from... Uh, 
being falsely accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple area and the holy place, um, all the way to uh, being shuttled from back and forth from the citadel uh, and before the Sanhedrin, and we find a lot of activity. And in the midst of this very fast-paced portion of Scripture, I want to take a little time to stop and reflect really on just one event, on really one verse of Scripture, and which is probably why we read an ancillary passage to go along with it this morning in our Bible reading. But I invite you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 23. And we have seen the uh, relationship here between Paul and the Jewish community essentially largely severed um, as Paul gives his final presentation, first to the masses of his testimony in Christ, and then as he uh, has a very uh, pointed and brief interaction with their leadership, with the Sanhedrin, and its climax of simply declaring something that will put them into disarray. And now his ministry is about to very dramatically and, and almost permanently. There is at least one or two other instances in which he'll be ministering to Jewish people, but largely um, all the rest will be a fulfillment of the prophetic statements of him having to go to Gentile kings uh, and uh, guards and such individuals as this. And so uh, we are in the midst of really a very, very quick-paced account uh, that Luke has for us. And we are going to pick up on that a little bit, perhaps a little later on this morning, uh, to try to get a little farther than just the one verse. But we want to take the time to consider uh, the calmness with, by which Paul can approach all this. How do we approach when the world comes at us fast and furious? How do we maintain the calm, deep peace of God that he demands of us, that he expects of us, that the world needs to see in us? And we want to consider that this morning as we look into God's word. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us, your spirit within us, and the opportunity that it affords us to uh, look into your word of truth with a confidence that we can and must know it, that we must receive it and live according to it. And Lord, we pray that you might guide this message into your truth by your spirit, that each one of us listening might be receptive in our hearts, in our lives, to receive it, not just as further information or something that we may choose to ignore or choose to remember, but rather as your authoritative word that makes demands of us. Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you as we look into your word. And again, we pray you might guard this time, as always, from error, from opinion, from the philosophies of this world. They might not creep in. Lord, we want your truth and its sincerity. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul, of course, for about the second time in as many days, has just about been pulled into pieces, it says. 
they were yanking on him, even among the Sanhedrin. Uh, the commander takes him out and uh, is prepared to uh, uh, find out what really is going on uh, and maybe is in a quandary of knowing what to do and is trying to guess what his next step is, and God is going to help direct him in that next step. And so the commander takes a little time, uh, and into the night uh, we find that um, no action has really been taken uh, since that event in the Sanhedrin. But in verse 11 we want to pick up in Acts chapter 23 and see that God is not resting during this time. He knows what is going to be happening, not only in the hours to come, but in the weeks and months that were ahead of Paul uh, in ministry and, and certainly years. And so let's pick up in verse 11. It says, But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And in the midst of all the turmoil that we have been studying, we come to a very precious single verse that it is easy maybe in our anxiousness, if this was a first read, to see what's going to come of Paul and his interaction with these Romans. And, and uh, we find a conspiracy brewing to, to, to cause his death, to murder him. And we have all the excitement of, a, of, of this narrative before us. And it's a very simple thing to simply slide through and say, well, that's interesting. Now let's see what happens. But we want this morning to just stop and reflect upon the significance of this verse in its place, its purpose, and its long-term impact. Um, I don't think that this was something that Paul thought lightly of. In fact, I would contend with you that everything we're going to read from here forward and see in his writings from here forward, which is why we read out of the book of Philippians as an example of that, of all of his writings, of the, this manifestation of God to him, of Christ, uh, at work in his life, and when we read through Philippians and other passages of Scripture, and we see, especially First Second Timothy, um, as well as Titus, at, at the very end of his ministry uh, life, um, we see in Paul this unquestioning depth that just is steady. It is a peace. It is a confidence. In fact, he uses that word over and over again. I have this confidence. And that confidence is driven, it is founded upon, it, it, is, it is enveloped in this promise of God to Paul. Not in just the what's going to happen in the future, but in the whole idea that I am standing by you. You are not in this by yourself, Paul. This is not you against the world. This is not even you against the Jews. This is not you against the Sanhedrin. Um, I'm involved in this account that in all of the activity of this narrative, we don't want to lose track of the fact that the Lord is at work, not just behind the scenes, but in the scenes. <laughs> he is at work. We often talk about what well, the Lord's behind the scenes. And I take a little offense at that. If the Lord is behind the scenes in your life, 
I have to ask you, what's going on in the scenes in your life? Because they're probably a little messed up. The Lord needs to be there in the forefront, upstage of you. He's got, he's got to be there. Uh, and that's where he needs to be for us to have this kind of confidence that Paul speaks of. We read in Philippians chapter 1, I want to take you there very quickly before we look into the aspects of this. I was, I'm still debating whether which one I should do first, but we're going to look at Philippians 1 because I want to see what Paul's expectation was, not only for himself, but for his people, for the church. So we begin looking in, and we, of course, recognize the verses that say, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, um, and, and we're familiar with that. But I want you to look at the verse before that in verse 20, and really verse 19 as well. Um, these words exude an attitude that should be prevalent in every believer. We're going to look at how and why shortly. It says in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. He has a knowledge. Not, I hope, not, I'm guessing. I know this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, when we read that about his deliverance, we think, well, that means that he's going to have no more problems and his life is going to go smoothly. But that is not what Paul means by the word deliverance. It is obvious in the text that he means something more substantial than that because he is prepared to die. You and I wouldn't describe being put to death as deliverance, would we? But for Paul it was. Why? We're going to find out. But look at that word. He, he knows this. And look at verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope, in nothing I shall be ashamed. He has a sureness and an expectation that no matter what he encounters from this point on or from any point on, once he introduced to Christ, that he's going to be ashamed. Does that mean he is not going to be abased by people? Oh, he's going to be abased. In fact, he already talked about that in this chapter in Philippians 1. He says some people are going to preach Christ trying to add affliction to my bonds. So yes, people are going to try to embarrass and shame him and put him down, but he's not going to be embarrassed. While they abase him, he's already humbled himself before God. They can't humble him any farther than that. For God will deliver him. He has this confidence, this expectation. And so he says, I'm not going to be ashamed. And so, with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And again, that word boldness. He has a boldness that transcends what people think of him, transcends what people do to him, transcends the, the activities going around him, transcends even the failures of the church herself toward him. His boldness transcends all of that. The threats, they don't mean anything. He has waterproof skin that just rolls off of him. Because he has a confidence, a sureness, that God will be glorified in his flesh. And it doesn't matter whether it's by continuing life of ministry or by somebody slitting his throat or hanging him on a tree. Um, doesn't matter. He has a boldness because of a confidence in God. Now, his expectation for the believers... Verse 25, being confident of this, I know, there's those words again, that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and join your, 
in a faith that you're rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you. Now look at what he expects from them. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that I come and see you or am absent, and may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and are not in any way terrified by your adversary, sorry, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, that of God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Paul's expectation, not only for himself to have that kind of confidence, that kind of knowledge, that kind of boldness, but he also had that expectation for the church. That the church, because of their deliverance from sin by Christ through his sacrifice and their reception of that by faith, um, should have that same boldness, that she should live a confident life in righteousness. That there is no tiptoeing around in your faith. That you are not trying to, um, well, I'm trying to be righteous, but not overly righteous, because I don't want people to think I'm a Bible thumper, you know. I don't want them to think I'm strange or odd. Why not? (laughs) Seems to be that's the way everyone else is going. They all want to be strange and odd. Um, Maybe normal is the oddest thing nowadays. Uh, But being righteous certainly has become an oddity. Paul says, this is who you should be, to walk worthy of the Lord. That you should have a confidence to stand fast in him. That there is no wishy-washiness that when I'm in this environment, whether it be in school, now the school started, I get to talk more about that again. Whether I'm, you know, I'm one person in school, I'm another person at home, I'm another person at church, I'm another person in this environment, and I just, I'm a chameleon. And I conform to my surroundings. Oh, that we would be hot-blooded Christians. That it would be evident that we are not just going to conform to the surroundings. That if we're in a hot environment, we just let our body temperature rise. If we're in a cold environment, we let our body temperature drop like reptiles. Oh, that we would be constant in our life. And this is Paul's expectation. But that constancy has a foundation underneath it. It's not constancy for constancy's sake. It's not standing fast because I have a really strong will. And uh, some of us might have a stronger will than others. But that's not the issue. That's not what it's dependent upon. It's not built on your will. It's built on something much surer. It's built on something uh, much stronger. It is built upon the presence and the promises of God. This is where our steadfastness comes from. This is where our willingness to stand and be bold, even when people are ready to slap us in the face for it and make strong declarations of truth and call sin, sin, uh, and, and to take steps against it. This is the foundation that enables all of that structure called the Christian life to be built upon. And for Paul... Uh, he needs the reminders too. Isn't that great? Isn't that great that Paul here needs God's reminders? Um, he's had this information for a while, has he not? Come on. Doesn't he, isn't this truth that he knows? Doesn't he know the Lord is with him? And doesn't he also know that God's plan is for him to get to Rome? 
All the way back in chapter 19, if you remember, and I've kind of rehearsed this to death, all the way back in chapter 19, it says that he was led by the Spirit that he needed to get to Jerusalem and then get to Rome. Already the Spirit had testified to him that that is the final destination, is Rome. You're going to get to Rome through Jerusalem. Um, he has been told it's going to be through imprisonment. And so at this point, it's pretty much gone according to plan, hasn't it? <laughs> Isn't this exactly what God said was going to happen? You're going to go to Jerusalem, and there you're going to be in prison, and that's going to, uh, you have to assume, get you to Rome. And so he's kind of in the midstream here of the events that God has really already communicated to him. You might say, well, he doesn't need any encouragement because he's right where God is directing him. No, he, you're wrong. God thinks otherwise. God comes in and says, okay, this guy is right in the middle of it. He is right in the middle of it. What are we going to do? What's he going to do? Can he get discouraged? Absolutely. He's human. Sometimes we treat Paul like he's superhuman, and he never made mistakes, and he never got discouraged um, or frustrated. Well, God seemed to know him better than you and I. He comes in and says, no, um, right here in midstream, Right in the transition, um, God comes and says he needs a word. He needs a visit. And I think that's great. But here, Paul, a guy that has all this revelation, has seen Christ on the, in his salvation uh, testimony, has, has served him faithfully for all these years as a mature believer, is a pillar already of the church, really, um, has written numerous uh, inspired scriptures already, still needs God to come and encourage him. And so God comes and stood by him, the first thing it says. It stood by him. And I think there's an aspect of that a lot of our fears are often visited in the night. Um, one of the it's not a quality, it's a sin that I deal with a lot of time is worry, and I, and I am a worrier. And every time any one of you miss a service, I'm pretty sure that you're, I don't know what, I have strange ideas of where you all are and what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, so yeah, I, I fret over just about all of you every, every Sunday night um, that aren't here. Because uh, that's who I am, and I can just say, well, that I can't make that go away. Well, that's not true. Because if that were true, then I can't tell anyone else to stop sinning what they're sinning. The Bible says that that's a sin. So I work on that. I work really hard on that. Um, but it seems to come in the night. Lay down, trying to go to sleep, and all of a sudden I keep thinking about the stuff that I should be concerned about. And here God comes in the night. About the time when there's not activity around to distract you, it's just quiet, you're alone. And now you're alone with your thoughts, and which means usually you're alone with your doubts, with your questions, with your misgivings. And God comes and he says, he stood by him. Just came and was by him. I'm here, Paul. You're not alone. And I think this is the first thing we need to understand in the Christian life, 
is that we are not alone. Not only in terms, and I know your immediate thoughts hopefully are, well, yeah, I have the Holy Spirit with me. That's the promise of God, and certainly that is absolutely true, but that is not all I'm referring to. You are not alone. We have a body of saints. We have God's word that we have to instruct us and guide us into his truth. We have the spirit to enable us and to empower us in that, certainly. Um, But the idea that we have to confront all of this alone is really very strange to the scriptures. And I'd like to compare Paul here to a young, not so young man, really, uh, young in terms of his leadership of Joshua, the Bible, you know, Commander of the Lord's army comes along and says, Be strong and good courage. I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. And this we need to be settled upon. We need to understand that one of the pillars of the Christian life is the fact that, that it is not me I'm depending upon. It is God who will never leave me nor forsake me. It is the Lord who I stand upon. It is Him that gives me this confidence and this, this sureness that I can stand fast on. He is the rock. I love Psalms reference to him as the rock of my salvation. It is immovable, unbreakable one. He is the almighty, unchangeable God we sang this morning. That's the foundation. We build on that foundation, certainly, and at some point we need to talk about I'm going to live and I'm going to move in him. All of my movement, all of my activity, all my speech is is built, but it has to be built upon this solid foundation. The Lord stands with me, and he does that through many mechanisms. Uh, The person of the Holy Spirit, the the body of saints, the church, um, that some people are throwing away and thinking, oh, it's the, the age of that is gone. Now we just need to have huge entertainment centers built. That's all we need. No, you need an intimate relationship with believers that will hold you accountable and encourage you in your walk with God. That's what we need. We need little churches like this one where we can really do Christianity on an intimate basis. We need that to stand in our faith. We also need God's word, and he has given us his truth. So the Lord stands by us. We are not alone. And he says this, be of good cheer. You're in prison. You don't know it yet, but there's 40 guys out there who have decided that they want you dead more than they want food. You have no idea what's going to transpire in the future. The Lord says, be of good cheer. Why? Because God has a plan. And we find not only his presence, but his promises. And here's his promise. Lord comes to Paul. Here's your promise. Um, You've testified for me in Jerusalem. You did your job here. Um, You must also bear witness of Rome. You're going to get to Rome. Now, keep this in mind. For the whole rest of the book of Acts, until he actually arrives in Rome... There is nothing that can interfere with this working of God. Not a conspiracy of 40 men who want him dead. Not the the, uh, collusion with the Sanhedrin who are going to uh, 
try to manipulate the commander into um, moving Paul again so that they can uh, injure him, bring harm to him. Um, not the uh, shipwreck, not a snake bite. There is nothing, nothing can interfere with this promise, right? I mean, you go to the shipwreck, and you're like, Paul is just as calm as can be. He's just sitting there in the boat like he's Jesus and can calm the sea whenever he wants. Well, he's calm because he knows he is a promise from God. You are going to have to talk in Rome. You've got to testify to me in Rome. He's not going to do it as a corpse. So he has full confidence. I'm getting to Rome. I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting to Rome. Shipwreck or no shipwreck? Snake bite, no snake bite. Doesn't matter. I'm getting to Rome. Forty men hunting me down. Oh, the confidence once we understand the promises of God. That he has our end determined. He has the end of all who have received him as Savior and Lord determined. And this, again, Paul communicates in Philippians chapter 1, where he says, I have a confidence. What is the confidence? That he who began a good work in me will complete it in Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would exude that kind of confidence. Well, what are these promises of God, that other foundation uh, uh, that is held up by the almighty, unchangeable God are all these promises. And, and normally when we think about promises of God, and we sang about some of those this morning, uh, we think of heaven, right? That's, that's primo promise, right? Heaven, that's the ultimate destination, and I am not discounting heaven. Uh, I certainly want you to include that in your list of the promises of God, uh, an eternal presence with him. That should be an encouragement to you to stand fast, that you have that waiting for you. Certainly, that should give a level of calmness to your life. That no matter what people do to your body, it's just temporary, and God has your forever taken care of. That's not the only promises I'm talking about. Because God has given us a lot of other promises. And I want to go through them chronologically in our experience in three categories. And the first category is the promise of your salvation. The promise of your salvation is one that God has given to you that if, and by the way, you will hear me say if a lot, and you've heard me harp on this plenty, that promises of God are overwhelmingly conditioned. They are conditioned upon you fulfilling the if clause. That is, if you do this, I will faithfully, and you can depend upon me doing this. Now, in this situation, Paul isn't given an if. He's given a since you already have. Paul has already met the if, hasn't he? Since you have done such a great job testifying to me in Jerusalem, be confident, you're going to testify for me in Rome. Paul has already fulfilled the if. So God's laid it out without a condition. You're going to testify for me in Rome, or of me in Rome. But for us, the promises of God are are conditional. And so what is the condition of salvation? Um, if you believe, if you receive, if you, if you uh, repent, uh, then you will receive salvation. You have to apply yourself to that promise. The promise of God is that I will cleanse you from all your sin. I will take upon you uh, that penalty 
and destroy the power of sin in your life and, and one day remove its presence. And so we, we have the promise of God there, but it's conditioned upon accepting Christ as your Savior. Not just in praying a sinner's prayer, but of, uh, of, of humbling oneself and making him our Lord, our Master, our Deliverer. This is the deliverance that we begin with, that we are delivered people. And that that promise of God means that my sins will not be held against me. They are separated from me. The Bible says the east is from the west, because those two never meet. They are, they are far from you. And we have resident because of that receiving him as Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit within us, there is a whole category of promises that are wrapped up in this deliverance of our salvation. The salvation promises call us to stand fast. That we are the children of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, that we have this adoption. And you read through the epistles and see how many times they keep referencing those kinds of promises of God. Read through Ephesians I mean, that's what Ephesians is all about. It was about, brethren, you've received Christ. Here's the incredible salvation package that God has just granted you. He planned this package to give to everyone who believes, and here it is in its fullness. And for a couple of chapters, Paul waxes eloquent on this wonderful salvation package that is made available to all and any who would believe. These are the promises of God, and we are excited about those, and we claim them frequently, and we, and we use them, hopefully, and employ them and look for them, and they should bring a steadiness to us, a calmness into our lives. I am his, and he is mine. As we have sung that this morning, that settledness, that doesn't matter what's going on around, here's what matters, is I am... His. <laughs> he is beside me. He is within me by his spirit. He has led me by his word. And, and I'm his. I'm not my own. I've crucified the flesh. So I'm going to live for him. I put myself and my interest to death a long time ago. I fulfilled the if. Now I can claim the promise. There's this big movement that... that was there when I was a teenager, the name it, claim it people. And it's not name it, claim it. It's meet the condition and then claim it. And everyone wants to think that the condition is naming it. Naming it isn't the condition. The condition is what does God say is required of you that you can claim his promise. What is required for you to receive the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sin is you must place your trust in him, humble him before him and, and Give your life to him. That's the condition. Much more substantial than naming it. And then the claiming of it comes very naturally and obviously. There is a second set of promises, ones that we don't like, but are equally necessary for us to recognize to keep us calm in the midst of the eddies of life. 
we have time and time again in God's word been reminded of this promise, both from our Lord himself and from almost every writer of scripture. And that is, in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus Christ said, if the world hates me, you should expect them to hate you too. If they have treated me this way, realize, believe me, they'll treat you this way. In Matthew 24, he says, listen, this is what you're going to have to confront. They're going to hunt you down. You're going to have family members. They're going to turn you over and think they're doing a service to society. Um, You're going to have to endure all of this. Paul, as we saw in, in our study in Acts, taught everywhere in every church you went to, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. We have learned over and over and over again, and even it speaks of it here in, in Philippians chapter 1, the passage we read earlier, is that not only is it because you believe in him, but that you must also suffer for him. That you count that a joy. Because it's a promise. God has promised us tribulation in this world. And I say, well, that's not such a great promise. I like the other ones better. Well, so do I. But these promises are just as sure and just as important and just as necessary for you to stand fast in the, in the whirlies of life that you can stand there calmly and just say, hmm, Lord is with me and we'll take care of this. I don't need to get all upset. I don't need to start doubting and questioning. I don't need to start, uh, start uh, stressing out over this because it's in hand. Why? Because God said it. God promised it. He promised that there would be tribulation in this world to all who walk in his ways. Again, it's conditional. I mean, if you live like the world, you love the world, and the world loves you, you're not going to receive this. You're not going to receive tribulation. You look like, sound like, taste like the world. I don't know if you taste like But if you're like the world and love the world, then yeah, the world is going to be fine with you. It's when you're different. It's when you don't love the world. It's when you stand up for righteousness and start acting like your Savior and proclaiming that men are sinners and lost and there's only one way that people are going to get a little upset with you. They're going to start slashing your throats dragging you through the streets behind chariots. They're going to tear you into pieces. They're going to spit upon you, beat you. This is a promise of God. Why is that precious and important? Well, any athletic endeavor has a coach, and if they know their stuff, they know to warn their athletes of what they're confronting. Do you know what happens every, I don't know, Monday or Tuesday? Sometimes I've heard even Sunday night on the plane ride home. Do you know what happens to football teams? They start studying film. Their bodies are sore from the beating they just took on that Sunday. And so the coaches employ their brains. They start studying film. You know what film they're studying? The next team they take on to see what they're up against next. 
Why do they have to study what they're up against next when they just got done getting beat up on the field from the last people? To prepare themselves for what they're up against. Here's their number one player. Here's their number two player. Here's this guy. If he tackles you, it's going to hurt. And you get to watch him do it to other people over and over again all the way home. Why do they do that? Why do they sit there and communicate to their, their athletes what they're going to be up against? Because it is necessary for them to have the frame of mind to prepare their bodies, prepare their minds, prepare their skills to engage that with an idea of being victorious over it. And this is the purpose of God promising you and even describing it very uh, precisely what's going to happen to you if you stand for Christ is that you can prepare your mind, prepare your body, prepare your spirit to not just endure it, but to endure it victoriously. Because that's God's intent for you. Is that you could be sitting in jail and have a wonderful night's sleep and you could care less if there's 40 people out there trying to kill you because God's got that in hand. Because I have some promises that even if they kill me, that's only improvement. <laughs> that's an improvement on my condition. Because then I'm with the Lord. What can they do? Why would I ever go back? And so, yes, the promises of God that your Christian walk is going to encounter adversity. It's going to encounter those that will hate you for it are precious and necessary. And shame on those preachers that don't turn their people's attention to those. They are certainly precious. Joshua was not just given the promise of the God's presence, but also that you're going to encounter enemies. You're going to encounter battles, not just enemies out there of called Canaanites, but you're going to encounter enemies at home, like Achan. We're going to do unrighteous things and violate our covenant. You've got to deal with that. Is Paul going to have easy sailing now? Because Literally. Um, because he knows the end? No, there's still going to be trials and tribulations in Paul's life. He's going to have big... I don't know. I don't think he liked being bitten by a snake. But he knew it was going to kill him. Just shake that thing off of me. That hurt. But it didn't kill me. Why? Because I have a promise of God I'm going to get there. But I also had the promise that bad things are going to happen to me like that. That people are going to not be receptive to my message. That people are going to threaten me. That they're going to try to hunt me down. That they're going to conspire against me. Um, Yes, all those things God promised. Why does it confuse you and confound you when it happens? Why does it send you into a tailspin spiritually when you confront something that God said you must confront to enter the kingdom of God? Can you imagine a football player coming up and says, oh, I didn't know that guy was that fast. He just ran right around me and crushed my quarterback. What's the coach going to do? He's going to slap him. I told you he was fast. Right? Isn't that what he's going to do? You stupid person. Don't sit there and cry and go, where did he come from? You saw the films where he came from. Of course you had to prepare for that. Shame on you. And that's what we ought to be saying to every Christian who goes into a tailspin because a little problems come into their life. What is wrong with you? Why weren't you expecting it? Here's the film. 
describing it perfectly. Why did it surprise you? Why weren't you prepared? Why are you now crying? Why are you going, oh, poor me? God gave us his promises, not for us to um, be downcast about our faith, but rather to be prepared and victorious in it. That I have prepared myself that when the day comes and someone puts a, a weapon in my face and says, deny Christ or die, that I'm already prepared in my mind and in my heart and in my spirit to do exactly what I'm going to do. I'll laugh at him and say, oh no, never, never. Do your worstest. I know that's not good English, but I'm going to say it to him anyway because that's probably how he talks. Do your worst. I'm calm. I'm at peace. I know my eternity. And I'm prepared for you. You're not prepared for my Lord, though, and what he's got for you. And you need to be. Well, then we would be ready when the boss comes up and says, it's your faith or your job. Which one is it? To just say, that's a no-brainer. I've been ready for that one. I've been waiting for that to come. There are other ways to make a living if you're, making, if you're requiring me to make that decision. It's my faith first. I can flip burgers. Might have to do some retooling of my lifestyle, but I can do it. Are you prepared? We read these statements, but I don't know that we're always standing on that promise that if they hated my Lord, they should hate me too. They should hate me. It should cause problems in my family between those who know Christ and are serving him, those that aren't and don't. Are you prepared for that? Do we really have the mindset that says that my love for the Savior is as if I hate my family compared to how much I love God, Jesus Christ? Prepare yourself, because the promise is there that one day you may have to choose between your family and righteousness and Jesus Christ. Are you prepared in your heart to do it? Because God has pretty much promised you that that's going to happen. And I see families fail to stand for righteousness when it comes to their own children. And it's sad that they have unprepared themselves for having to make that choice. We have these promises, not only of our, around our salvation, we not only have the promises of tribulation that we are talked about, that we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us, that we have these examples throughout the Old Testament of those who were scorned and beaten and slaughtered because they proclaimed the truth to a generation that didn't want to hear it. We also have a set of promises that God has a purpose 
and an ultimate plan for this world and for his church. And those sets of promises we also sing about, and we enjoy those, and, uh, but they don't just involve heaven. And we've studied this Sunday night in our study in Revelation that God does in, will pour out his wrath on the earth, that he will judge the men, and that all men will bow the knee before him, and that all of us will have a day of reckoning, a, a, a day that we will have to give an account for every idle word, for our time, for our, our resources, that we will give that accounting before him of what's just fluff and bluff that needs to be burned up and what's enduring. And those are promises of God that are motivating for Paul, for the Churley Church, and for us. And we can try to convince ourselves and rationalize that some of our behavior has eternal value to it, but when it comes down to push to shove and we are taken home this day and it's required of you to make an accounting today, that really it comes down to, well, yeah, it doesn't have any eternal value, does it? It's just getting burned up. And we might have to realize that we're going to be entering that judgment seat of Christ sort of empty-handed because the fire purified away and all we got is a few nuggets when we thought we had a wagon load of gold, silver, and precious stone. So those promises are sobering as well. And they are precious. And they do motivate us to stand fast, to recognize that when God says, if you deny me before men... I will deny you before my Father. That is a promise of eternal determination. And it's a frightening one. That when Christ says, many will come to me in that day, saying, Lord, Lord, um, have we not done this in your name and that in your name? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. That is a frightening promise of God. That doing stuff for him is not equal to being known by him and being his, and he, him being yours. So yes, there are precious promises about the end and about the conclusion of this world, but they are not unsettling, or I'm sorry, they are unsettling. They're not just uh, because um, they make demands of us. Yes, it will all be fair then. I want to make sure that I'm on the mercy and grace side of that equation and meet that condition of those promises. So Paul here was to be of good cheer. Why? Because the Lord stood by him. God's presence. Oh, that we would envelop ourselves in his presence. I don't mean some mystical thing of of sitting around with certain kind of music and incense going and feeling him. When I'm talking about knowing his presence, I'm talking about being uh, with his people and in his word and by his spirit and, and in prayer and, and meditating upon his truth. This is to know his presence and to love it. That praying without ceasing isn't impossible because it's natural to include God in every act and conversation.
and then to stand fast on his promises. Not just name them, claim them. I'm talking about understanding their conditions and using the promises of God to, to strengthen ourselves, to uh, sharpen ourselves so that when we are tested, we stand, and that when we are measured, we will come forth like gold. This is what God chooses to let Paul know. You can be of courage. I'm standing by you, and I have some promises. And that changes everything. Now there's no misgivings. There's no questions. There's no doubts. From here on out, I know i got to get to Rome. I know my destination. And so I'm going to have hardships in between now in that destination, but... I'll traverse those hardships because I know the destination is sure because God has declared it again. And I pray that today is another one of those again times for you. And if it's not and it's your first time, well, I want to invite you to claim the promises of his salvation that are conditioned upon you humbling yourself and recognizing your sin and turning from it to him. But for each of us that we might live prepared, stand, to not only believe in him, but to suffer for his name, to his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for timely word given to your servant in the midst of what almost looks like chaos of mobs and crowds. But yet you were in control and you were ready to guard this life and his ministry and direct it to where you have it concluding. And Lord, we thank you for demonstrating and showing to us that need to be reminded, though we already know it, to be reminded of your presence and your promises, that we might stand fast, that we might, in the midst of adversity, in the midst of just dealing with this world, that we might have a calm assurance of our future built not upon ourselves, but upon you and upon your promises. Lord, we recognize that we are entering a time in this nation or well into it where the message of followers of the way are not received. They are being hushed. They are being silenced. They are being ridiculed. They are being sought to be removed from the public square. Lord, you haven't commanded us to be silent. You have not commanded us to shrink away. And so we pray that you might find us bold to confess your name before all men, that you might confess your knowledge of us on that day. Until that day, we pray that we might be faithful to your honor, glory, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.